Well, when we consider the issue of abortion, I think most of us would say that for this issue and for all of life, the Bible is authoritative for our faith in practice. That is to say, the Bible is the authority for what we believe and for what we do regarding the issue of abortion. The problem that we have when it comes to appealing to biblical authority on the issue of abortion is that the Bible does not um, talk about these things in the way that we might want it to. It's not a modern systematic theology. The Bible's written in a cultural context that's far different from our own. More than that, the Bible requires interpretation, right? So it's very difficult for us to say the Bible says blank when the Bible doesn't actually say anything directly about abortion. And then, of course, as we know for many issues, the Bible just doesn't address this, the kind of issues that we're facing with the language and with the exact situation that, that we're in now in our contemporary world. So for that reason, our appeal to the Bible is our ultimate authority for contemporary ethical issues requires a bit of explanation. This guy, Hayes, argues that unless we can give a coherent account of our methods for moving between text and normal normative ethical judgments, so when we talk about something being normative, we're saying that's the way it should be. All right, this, this is the... Uh, command that we would have to follow this way of being. So if we're going to give a coherent account of our position, we need to talk about the way we move from the text to our ethical judgment. And if we just say the Bible says so, that's going to be hollow and unconvincing because there is no verse we can point to that says abortion is immoral. Uh, so appealing to the Bible requires some level of nuance that I, I am afraid that many Christians just don't have. We're very quick to say the Bible is against abortion, but we can't account for the way that we move between the biblical text and our modern day life. So uh, that's what I want to do here this morning is to help us see how we move from what the Bible says to the way that we operate in the contemporary world. Um, just to add another point to this, there's an ethics book called Ethics for a Brave New World by the Feinberg brothers, and they just conclude this. The Bible presents a perspective on ethics, but that does not mean every biblical teaching can be applied without any modification. The evangelical must decide which rules as stated in Scripture apply to our own day, and he must know how to decide which apply. So ultimately, I think when you hear Christians say the Bible is our authority for ethics— and the Bible says blank is wrong, therefore we shouldn't do it, the people who would quibble with that or oppose those, the ideas that we're arguing for can easily look to biblical text and find ethical judgments that we would say should not apply today. And that's where the confusion comes in, because when uh, someone reads the Bible and sees that parents are permitted to stone their children for disrespecting them, and, and we're claiming that's our authority— then there's the question of, why are you appealing to that authority? And if it's truly your authority, why aren't you following it in every way? This is one of the reasons we're spending time in that biblical theology class, because there are texts like that, and we have to have an understanding of the Bible in the way that the covenants progress and relate to each other, and, and we need to be able to articulate why we don't follow those commands and why we can still say the Bible's our ultimate authority for faith and practice. I think you see what I mean here. This quick claim that the Bible tells us to do something is not satisfactory because there's many things the Bible 
might, from one perspective, tell us to do that we say it doesn't tell us to do. So, so we need nuance and we need careful thought here. Um, because the Bible does not address every situation, uh, we, we need to think carefully. But we do recognize that the Bible does call the Christian community to embody the biblical imperatives that produce persons and communities whose character is commensurate with Jesus Christ and thereby pleasing to God. And we can't do it with proof text. Proof texting is not the way forward. There are some ethics books that are popular that apply a proof texting method. I, I mentioned one in the footnote there. This guy, Wayne Grudem, has a, an ethics book that I think is built on proof text. And it's the kind of ethics that is unsustainable. It's the kind of ethics that just doesn't work. While there are some good things in that book, and, and maybe I would agree with many of the conclusions in that book, I don't agree with the way he gets there. And I think it's building a foundation on, like, if you've ever built a, a tower out of spaghetti noodles and marshmallows, that's what a proof texting foundation for ethics is. It crumbles as soon as you find other proof texts that seem to say something different. So we need, we need something more robust. So I want to point to Hayes' method for contemporary ethics that he lays out in this book, The Moral Vision of the New Testament. Um, I think eventually it would be good for us to do a whole Bible class on ethics. I would love to do that because I think we need to talk about this method more carefully. I can just introduce it to you really briefly here. So he gives four tasks that we need to accomplish on our way to arriving at a normative ethical judgment. The first is the descriptive task, and that's reading the text carefully. So essentially, this is an appeal to look at the Bible. What does the Bible say on this issue? And then you move beyond just, and, and that's a descriptive task. So this is, we want to restrain ourselves from making interpretive statements or harmonizing things that appear to say different things too quickly. Because if we try to harmonize the diverse voices of the Bible, and especially of the New Testament authors on any issue, we start to lose the nuances that they bring to this. Um, so for example, if you want to make an, a normative ethical judgment about divorce, and all you do is appeal to Jesus's statement that gives one exception for divorce, and, and you want to build your ethics on that proof text, and you fail to consider the wider biblical witness, you won't see that Paul gives different exceptions that permit divorce. And so it's more complicated than finding one proof text and moving from there directly to normative ethical judgment, which is why we need the second task, the synthetic task, which is where we place the text in their canonical context. And even this is not easy. So using that example then of where Jesus just gives one exception that permits divorce and Paul gives other exceptions that permit divorce, it's not as easy as simply concluding, well, now there are three total exceptions for divorce. We have to ask ourselves, what is Paul doing? Is Paul giving us just the final exceptions in a comprehensive treatment of divorce? Or is he modeling the way that we spiritually and rationally conclude other exceptions for divorce? So, so is Paul demonstrating what it looks like to navigate contemporary ethics? Or is he giving a final word on ethics? So even when we try to synthesize text and, and figure out how they relate to each other and how they actually agree with each other when they look like they disagree, it's not as simple, perhaps, as saying both and. You know, it, it's not saying, yes, what Jesus said is true and what Paul said is true, and that's it. It might mean that we're introduced into a model of ethical decision-making by Paul. 
So this is where Christians might appeal to the authority of the Bible and, and still arrive at different conclusions on a particular issue. And I think as I've been thinking about it this weekend, one of the most fundamental reasons perhaps is because some will look at the biblical text as giving the final word on everything, while others will look at the biblical authors as paving a way forward for making ethical judgments. And, and we, I think, probably apply those ideas inconsistently. So for divorce, one might be inclined to say that the final word is given, but for slavery, we might say that a path is given to, to go forward and make different ethical judgments about slavery. So you see what I mean. This, this is not just a, a biblical appeal, uh, an appeal to biblical authority is not as straightforward as saying the Bible says this, therefore we must do that. What we must do then, after synthesizing and seeking to understand what the Bible says as a whole, we move to the third task, what he calls the hermeneutical task, which is relating the text to our situation. So we exegete and interpret the scriptures, and then we exegete and interpret our culture and our place in the world, and we try to then put those texts into action, embody the morals of that text in our action in the contemporary world. We, we try to understand how the moral instructions in the Bible would provide moral instruction for life in this world. So, so this is kind of like the hinge that leads then to the final task, the pragmatic task of living the text. So we don't just state principles about a position, but we then live, we embody the morality of the, the scriptures. Um, and we have to do this through our imagination. We have to, our moral imaginations have to be formed by the text that then help us imagine what it looks like to live a moral life in this world. So the texts are not just rules to follow, but they're paradynamic. They, they shape our moral reasoning so that we can navigate the new and surprising situations that we encounter in our day-to-day -day life. Um, this guy, Kevin Van Huser, talks about the, the drama of doctrine. So we take our doctrine and it's like we're put on the stage where we're performing a drama that's informed by that doctrine. The scriptures then act like a script for our daily life. So using that analogy of a performance of drama of a play, we recognize that scripts don't contain every action that's necessary, nor do they account for the flaws and errors of our fellow actors. Improvisation is a necessary element of acting of performance. We're improvising in our intonations, even if we have the script written for us, and our intonations change the way that things are heard. And so using that analogy, I think it's really helpful because it shows us that the point is not to create a black and white list of laws from the Bible, but to be informed in a particular way so that we perform the drama of doctrine in our daily lives. And our improvisation, however, needs to be contained by the overall thrust of the biblical teaching. So our improvisation does not free us from the doctrine, but it does free us to meaningfully embody that doctrine in our daily life. So I, I put a lot more there for you that if, if, if you wanna read it more in like uh, argument book form, it's in the notes for you, but that's the essence of what I'm getting at there. Any comments or questions about this method of arriving at ethical judgments? 
Okay, I would say that this is a good paradigm for you to use in your daily life as your family's considering things, whether it's as small as, you know, what kind of movies are we going to watch as a family to how should we cultivate our budget to what, what are we going to do with our lives? All of these issues, I think, filter through this. It takes time. That's one of the benefits of this is we don't just jump to a conclusion, but it forces us to start to think Bible and to think carefully as we arrive at ethical conclusions. Anything anyone wants to ask on that? Good, good. Yeah, I wish I could say that that was mine, but <laughs> it's not, and it's not even Van Hooster's. People have been talking about this for a long time. All right, let me talk about the issue of abortion then. I want to argue that when we make ethical judgments about abortion and about the way that we should respond to this issue, we need to start not with making ethical judgments for the state and for society, but by making ethical judgments for the church. Uh, there, there's, I think, a place for the church to inform the state on what they should do and think. Um, but I, ultimately, this is an issue for the church, and that's where our energy and focus should go. Unfortunately, I think that many churches and Christians instead put all of their attention on the way the state relates to the issue of abortion and doesn't take up the responsibility to um, respond appropriately within the church. And that's where I want to push our attention. What that means then is the focus of our arguments will not be rational arguments that any secular philosopher could make against abortion. Instead, we're going to appeal to the Bible and this, I think, is that firm foundation that we need. The, the reality, though, is the thing that we are staking our opinion on, the Bible, is not accepted by the secular world. And we need to be okay with that. And we need to realize then that if, if the Bible is our ultimate authority for faith and practice, and if the Bible is ultimately what's shaping our view, then the outworking of our ethical judgment should take place primarily in the sphere of the community that receives that authoritative text, not in the community out there that doesn't. And this is a significant point to make because that's not where most people start, at least in my experience. I think most people start by saying, how can we convince unbelievers to stop this? Not how, how do we figure out how we should relate to the issue? Uh, so the church is primary. So let's move through these tasks, um, starting with the descriptive and synthetic tasks. So the first two, looking at the Bible, in an almost unsettling way, Hayes declares, the Bible contains no text about abortion. When I first read that, I thought, you're wrong. It's got to say something. But the simple fact, often ignored by those who would make opposition to abortion into a virtual litmus test of true Christian faith, places the issue of abortion in a very different category. The fact is that there is no text that directly relates to abortion. So it's not a question of how to interpret a contested text, as that is in the case of divorce, or how to negotiate between text intention, or how to resolve the competing authority claims of the New Testament and contemporary experience. He deals with the issue of homosexuality earlier there, and there you have this experience of participating in, in a, an ethical action in an ongoing way. Abortion is a sort of one-and-done action in that sense. There's no full experience that can be appealed to. So here he says the Bible offers no direct word at all. And as jarring as this declaration might be, a survey of biblical text yields no direct instructions regarding abortion, despite the fact that both opponents 
of abortion and proponents of abortion appeal to the Bible at times to try to make their case. So, for example, opponents of abortion might appeal to the man, do not murder, as if that's an open and closed case for, for outlawing abortion. However, the debate is not about whether or not murder should be permitted. It's a question of definition. Is abortion murder? And the Bible doesn't uh, describe abortion as murder, as it does in other instances. Um, throughout the Old Covenant, the you know, prohibition against mor- murder has different articulations and different judgments for the killing of individuals that are called murder, and this is not one of them. So it's a, we might well conclude that abortion is murder, but the Bible doesn't give us that in, in these clear terms as it does for other kinds of killing, like fratricide and, um, you know, where you kill your brother. These sorts of, these situations are laid out clearly as murder. Abortion is not. On the other side, those advocating for abortion sometimes appeal to Exodus 21, 22 through 25, where laws regarding the payment for injuries of a pregnant woman are detailed. And in the case where the unborn baby is killed, but the mother is otherwise unharmed, then only a fine is exacted, and that unborn baby is in some ways treated as property, and a payment is made for, for that the death of that child, not this life-for-life payment that's made if the mother is killed. And so uh, proponents of abortion will look at this and say, look, an unborn child is merely a fetus. It's not a child. It's not human. And we know this because the Bible's punishment for killing an unborn child is not the same as the punishment for killing another human being. And I want to say that neither of those texts, the command not to murder, nor this text deal with the issue of abortion. And so our appeals to them might frame the symbolic world of the Bible, but they don't give us direction for making an ethical judgment on abortion. Does this make sense? I think most, most Christians may not be aware of this text in Exodus 21, um, in part because there's a translation issue. It's hard to know. What I, I gave you a lengthy footnote about that, but, but the point is that both sides can make appeals to the Bible. Opponents of abortion often appeal to other texts as well, such as Psalm 139 or Jeremiah 1, both of which describe God's knowledge and power of the ch- over the life of the womb. Um, but both of these texts are poetic, and we can't take them as principles. And they, again, might form the imaginative, symbolic world of the Bible, but they don't make a guidance or don't provide guidance for ethical decision-making. They're poetic descriptions and should be treated as poetry, not as propositions. So the basic fact that there are no texts in the Bible that deal directly with abortion means that there are no texts to synthesize, right? We don't have to take competing voices or we don't have to work to harmonize verses in the Bible because the Bible doesn't speak to this issue directly. But as people who want to know what the Bible symbolic world is and how, and as people who want our imaginations formed by the Bible, we should then expand our search of the biblical text to include the biblical perspective on pregnancy and childbearing. And the Bible talks about these things a lot. And um, what we could conclude if we did that, as Hayes does, is that children are a great blessing from God and childlessness a terrible affliction. So many texts describe infertility as problematic and lack of pregnancy as problematic, but no texts describe fertility or pregnancy as problematic. 
So we should regard it as significant that the canon, though it does not address abortion specifically, portrays a world in which abortion would be not so much immoral as unthinkable or unintelligible. So that's what shapes our moral imagination, and that's what gives us our bearings as we navigate the issue of abortion, is that childbearing is always received as a blessing from God, not a curse. And so that shapes the way that we respond to it. But we should be clear that this, this is a secondary expansion and it's forming a conception of the world. It's not taking direct appeals from scripture on a particular issue. And the reality is the majority of our contemporary ethics are arrived at in this way by grabbing onto larger biblical conceptions, not onto individual tasks. And, and when we do that, as we will in a moment, so we look at the symbolic world of the Bible and paradigms for shaping our action in that world, we have a rock-solid foundation to stand on because it would make some of these ethical decisions totally unimaginable to us. It, it just will not compute. We'll have a different way forward. And that's a lot better of a place to be than trying to grab onto a poetic description of God's knowledge of someone in the womb. That just doesn't stand the test. This does. All right. So moving then to the hermeneutical tax, task, so taking what the Bible says and putting it into our world, we, ha- we can only do that by converging the worlds together. How are we imagining the, the symbolic world of the Bible and the way forward in that world? Uh, and the way we look at that is going to affect the way that we navigate this world. So let's pause and think about that here for, for quite a bit. The most significant feature of the Bible's symbolic world is the image of God as the creator and author of life. Because God is the creator and author of life, we can conclude that whenever new life begins to develop in any pregnancy, the creative power of God is at work, and Jesus Christ, who is the original agent of creation, has already died for the redemption of the incipient life in utero. So here, Hayes brings together God's actions in creation and in new creation slash redemption, leading him to affirm Bart's declaration that the true light of the world shines already in the darkness of the mother's womb. I think that's a beautiful line from Bart's church dogmatics. And when we look at the symbolic world of the Bible where God is creator, we can affirm that, and that, that, of course, will inform our ethical judgments. In this biblical world where God is the creator, humans are assigned stewardship of that creation. The the assignment is to steward and cultivate God's creation, not to destroy God's creation, and this militates against any termination of pregnancy. This sets aside debates about personhood or when human life begins because all life is God's creation and humans are called to steward and cultivate that creation, not to destroy it. So for that reason, the normal response to pregnancy within the Bible's symbolic world is one of rejoicing for God's gift even when that gift comes unexpectedly. And when we read the Old Testament narratives in particular, and even the new, when life comes unexpectedly, there's usually greater rejoicing than when there's an expectation of pregnancy and life comes. Uh, so, so this shapes our imagination, our moral imagination, and it, it forms our idea of the symbolic world of the Bible. So what are, how then do we navigate this world where God is creator and we're stewards? Well, we could identify hundreds of lines of thinking here, but Hayes lays out three paradigms for living in the symbolic world of the Bible. 
First, he points to the Good Samaritan, where Jesus teaches that we are called upon to become neighbors to those who are helpless, going beyond conventional conceptions of duty to provide life-sustaining aid to those whom we might not have regarded as worthy of our compassion. He continues, such a standard would apply both to the mother in a crisis pregnancy and to her unborn child. So in this pragmatic step, we need to consider what it means for us to go and do the same. That was Jesus's words to the individuals he's speaking to. But this, this says in this symbolic world, using this example of the Good Samaritan, we learn to expand our scope of compassion, not narrow our scope of compassion. That's the kind of way of being that we ought to adopt. Second, Hayes points to the Jerusalem community in Acts who embodied the gospel of the kingdom through their practices of economic sharing and caring for the needy. So he describes it, this task, so so people are sharing, giving of their finances, of their food, of their shelter for those who are in need. He concludes, thus within the church, there should be no justification for abortion on economic grounds or on the ground of the incapacity of the mother to care for the child. The community assumes responsibility and creates whatever structures are necessary to provide for mother and child alike. Sharing, not abortion, is the answer. This is what it means for the community to live out the power of the resurrection. So the the way that we deal with abortion is we understand that we should not advocate for it because God is creator and we're stewards. But secondly, we steward it by taking on responsibility for individuals facing this situation and and for the unborn child. And I I would appeal again to uh, Tim Aiken's exhortation to us when he preached here a couple months ago of this might not be your problem, but it's your responsibility. This, you might not be the cause of this situation, but it's now your responsibility. And that's what Hayes is trying to point out as he appeals to this example of the Jerusalem community. The community of faith should provide whatever support is necessary for both man and woman to assume their roles as parents. This would entail not only financial support, but also the support of friendship, counsel, and prayer. If the church seriously adopted the paradigm of Acts 4, 32 through 35 as a model for its life, many of the of the usual arguments for abortion would fall away. I, th- I think that is striking and costly, and, and we need to receive that as an admonition for our church, as we'll see in a moment. I don't think that the call here is to pour out all of the church's funds to supporting outsiders, but to fold individuals into the life of community and to offer this kind of aid to any who are part of this community who might be in need. So it's not as if we're, we're going to drain every resource we have and give it to Amnion Pregnancy Center or anyone who comes knocking on the door, but anyone who becomes part of this community or connects to us should be assured that there's help for their time of need, um, whether they're officially members yet or not, um, and regardless of the circumstances of, of that pregnancy. We'll talk about this more later. Third, Hayes calls for an imitation of Christ. And this is more than just a WWJD kind of a statement. It's, it's a strong and careful call that's in keeping with apostolic teaching that incul- includes a call to radical self-giving. So he comments to imitate Christ is to forswear seeking one's own self-defined freedom in order to render services to others. And this would apply both to the individuals who are facing a crisis pregnancy to give up their own self-defined freedom and a call to the community of faith that that couple connects to or that that person connects to 
because a community of faith is also called to give up their own self-defined freedom. A community that imitates Christ will act in service to welcome children, both born and unborn, even when to do so is difficult and may cause serious hardship. So this is a word of welcome to, to the pregnant woman, to her unborn baby, and, and to the, the father of that baby as well. Um, and this is a charge not laid just on them, but on the whole church. Okay, so when we look at this biblical paradigm and we recognize there aren't explicit texts about abortion, then other authorities take on greater weight, don't they? So when the Bible doesn't have a direct word on something, we also appeal to other authorities like tradition, reason, and um, experience. And we say these things bear greater weight in our judgment making and the way that we're going to operate because the Bible doesn't give us a, a direct script for operations. So other authorities include tradition. I'll just mention one, which is the Didache, which is Christian teaching from the late first century to early second century. So think like 90 AD to 120 AD, somewhere in there. And it expounds on the second commandment. It says, do not murder children through abortion, nor kill them after they have been born. So even though abortion is a contemporary issue for us and it works itself out in a particular way, abortion and infanticide were widely practiced in the Greco-Roman world and Christians responded in this way, saying don't kill children, don't murder children through abortion or kill them after they have been born. Uh, There were many reasons for abortion, including the concealment of illicit sexual activity as well as economic reasons. So in many ways, the same reasons that abortion is advocated for today minus significantly uh, the reason of my right for, you know, the, the right of a woman to her own body or for financial success or some, you know, job furtherance or something like that. Those were not arguments that were made, but economics and hiding illicit sexual activity were reasons that were given. Significantly, though, the decision to abort a baby was primarily made by men rather than women. And it's the, the script has been flipped on that at this point, in large part because of that argument for a right to privacy and a right uh, to my own body, to do with my body what I want. Yeah, from the start, Christian doctrine prohibited abortion and infanticide, classifying both as murder. So the entire trajectory of Christian tradition has, has rede- rejected abortion except for in special cases. There are some special cases that we'll talk about in a moment. So other authorities reason there are good, we should make rational arguments against abortion. And um, that's, that's good, a good thing to do. But within the symbolic world of the Bible, six common lines of reasoning are excluded. A conflict of rights can't frame the issue. A conflict of the right to privacy can't frame the issue. The notion of the sanctity of life or sacredness of life doesn't frame the issue. So the other two, we might say, this works against those who are proponents of abortion. This third one works against those who are opponents of abortion because the Bible doesn't give us a right to life. Life is a gift. And I I think, unfortunately, ethics books just throw out this phrase of this. It violates the sanctity of human life. And that doesn't really mean anything. It violates God's authority as the author of life and creator. And that's a better thing to say. For assignment of personhood or identification when human life begins is, is outside of the discussion. The quality of life argument has no place because all life is a gift from God. More than that, the identification of a child as unwanted has no place in the symbolic world of the Bible because the New Testament witnesses to Christ and his community who love the unwanted 
they don't recommend the termination of the unwanted. And finally, hypothetical and consequentialist arguments have no place. The question of what if Mary had aborted Jesus is quickly, you know, responded to with the question of what if Hitler's mom had aborted him? You know, one arguing the world would be worse off and the other arguing the world would be better off. The New Testament teaches us to ask real questions regarding what God's will for us is in the moment, not hypothetical questions of what might result in better consequences. So these lines of reasoning I'm trying to say in following Hayes are outside of the scope of the symbolic world of the Bible. Other experiences, authority experience, it's very fickle on this matter. Individuals who are advocating for abortion will point to the experience of women whose lives are somehow better off because they chose abortion. And opponents of abortion will point to the experience of individuals who chose not to have an abortion, even though they had considered it, and show how their quality of life is better because of their decision. So I think there's a place for that kind of argument. And at the Amnion Gala that I was at a couple months ago, there was a really compelling testimony of a woman who chose not to have an abortion. There's a place for these, but that doesn't really factor very heavily into our decision-making for ethical judgments here. So what normative judgments can we arrive at? What can we say about abortion? First, I think we can say that there are exceptions to the no abortion position. Um, the, the first exception, and I think really the only one, is in order to save the life of the mother. I think there are good reasons um, where there are situations where one one is going to die and there's a hard decision to make there or there's there's a, a circumstance where the baby is going to die either way and so the abortion prevents the death of the mother i footnoted an ethics textbook that talks about the variety of situations that are there um, i don't think it is correct for christians to take a hard line and say the mother must give her life up for the baby um, I know that that position is there. I know some hold that very strongly, but I don't know that we can, on the basis of, of our ethical decision-making here, arrive at that conclusion and say, we're absolutely right on that. In fact, I think the, the other case is maybe uh, has a stronger argument. Other exceptions are often raised, like the exception for cases of rape and or incest. Um, I, I don't think that this is an exception that stands in the Christian community. Um, I think on a political level, if we're arguing for restraint of abortion and we permit that, the percentage of those cases are so low, I think it's like less than 1% according to some statistics. So if that helps us make changes, great. But I think within the church, the way that we've arrived at our conclusions about with the symbolic world of the Bible and then our, the paradigms for living in that world, I think it would say the mother might, we, we might not say this mother who is raped or needs to raise this child, but we would, I think, say this mother should not abort the child. Now, I will say that I think Hayes, well, I know Hayes because he says it clearly, I think in contradiction to his whole rationale along the way, says that this is an acceptable category. And I think it just shows us that even among Christians who are seeking to think carefully about the Bible, different conclusions will be arrived at here. I think his conclusion is inconsistent on this point, and I disagree with it. But again, in practice, the percentage of those situations are so small that you could go through your whole life in a church and never 
run into, even if you disagree hypothetically on the issue, you might not ever encounter that issue. So where there are disagreements on that issue, I, I want to say Hayes is inconsistent, but I wouldn't want to throw him under the bus too, too strongly for that. A final situation where exceptions are often considered is in cases of disability. And again, I think the symbolic world of the Bible and the paradigms we have say that the community should come alongside this individual and there should be no reason to abort this baby. Um, again, Hayes here says that this shouldn't happen. Abortion shouldn't happen in these instances. He says he understands when it does, particularly when there's not a community of faith who's willing to walk with that family through that circumstance. So I agree with him when he says that if there's a, a couple or a person in the church facing this and is contemplating an abortion, they should bring this to the whole church and the church together should make a decision to abort or not abort the baby. And with the moorings that we have, the decision would be to not abort the baby. But if the church is not willing to take on the responsibility to walk with that mother and potentially the father as well through that situation, then the church needs to make themselves culpable in the decision to abort that baby um, by, by giving their, their word of permission. And I think what that does is force us to say, are we actually going to take responsibility and support this individual or not? And um, that, that's a, that makes us walk in those shoes. And it, it forces us to make the kind of commitment that's needed for someone facing that hard situation. Um, so I'll leave that to you to think about, but, but I think that those kinds of decisions, that if the church is unwilling to take responsibility, then they need to share that sense of guilt in, in making the decision for an abortion. And of course, don't hear me advocating that that should happen. I'm advocating that that shouldn't happen, but that means we need to help take responsibility. So the pragmatic task. Now it's time to consider what the church should do in response to the problem of abortion. Um, so first, while it's right for Christians to advocate against abortion in the larger culture, we cannot co coerce moral consensus in a post-Christian culture any more than the early church could in a pre-Christian culture. Instead, we just respond to the issue in the same way. Um, we live in a place where we can advocate for legislation. I think it's right for us to do that in non-offensive ways. Don't blow up abortion facilities. Don't chain yourself to the doors of, of Planned Parenthood. I think that's the wrong way to do it. But I think it is right for us to vote in particular ways and, and speak out and hope for things like Roe being overturned. I think that's good. And I will say, because this is a hot topic, that is not Christian nationalism. All legislation is moral. So, so this idea that you're, you're advocating to legislate Christian morality, well, first of all, there are other faith traditions that would hold the same opinion. And second, because all legislation communicates morality, there's just no way around it. Um, so it's not Christian, Christian nationalism. We're not saying that America's God's chosen nation. Therefore, in America, abortion should be outlawed. Instead, we're, we're seeking for what we believe is the good of all people. Um, so we should hope and pray that way, but our responsibility, like the early church, is not to change the government's mind, but to change our own. Which leads second, in the contemporary world, the primary task of the Christian community on this issue is to form a counter-community of witness, summoning the world to see the gospel in action. So the primary calling of the church is not to advocate for the unborn through intimidation and large demonstrations, but instead through sacrifice and showing the world a different way forward. Third, if the church is at large to form a counter-community of witness, then it's local churches that must become that community of witness. 
Local churches must position themselves within the symbolic world of the Bible so that they can live faithfully in this contemporary world. So we need to shape ourselves in the life of our community by these biblical paradigms so that we can live faithfully in this contemporary world. One example of a church commitment to be a counter community of witness is represented in the Durham Declaration, which includes this pledge. We pledge with God's help to become a church that hospitably provides safe refuge for the so-called unwanted child and mother. We will joyfully welcome and generously support with prayer, friendship, and material resources both child and mother. This support includes strong encouragement for the biological father to be a father indeed to his child. I've, I've linked to that declaration. Read those commitments. Hayes notes that no one can make such a pledge lightly. A church that seriously attempted to live out such a commitment would quickly find itself extended to the limits of its resources and its members would be called upon to make serious personal sacrifices. In other words, it would find itself living as the church envisioned by the New Testament. That's, that's a call for us. So what does it look like for Resurrection Church to become a counter-community of witness? I have just a few ideas here. Not fully worked out, but I think a good start. I think just shaping the whole thing is that members of this church should be known for their action on this issue not because of social media posts or political protest but because of testimonies of acceptance sacrifice and ongoing support that reflect biblical paradigms that's what we want to be known for our pro-life position should not be marked out by yelling loudly about policies but instead by living loudly in our sacrifice and care others. So first, we should make clear to all who visit with us, and especially to those who are folded into this community of faith, that we're committed to loving, sacrificing for, and serving all parents, including those facing crisis pregnancies. There should be no questions about our commitment to walk with individuals in our church who might face a decision to abort a baby. More than that, our commitment to help does not waver based on the circumstances that led to the pregnancy or the situation of the individuals involved. So what I'm saying here is whether that happens someday to be a teenager who's part of our church who becomes pregnant or someone who comes to us to be folded into the life of our church, it doesn't matter. Our, our support shouldn't waver. Second, we should make it giving toward our benevolence fund and emphasis so that we have resources available to provide aid. In addition to that financial way of, su of support, it would be prudent to identify a deacon or other individual who can coordinate this kind of care and exercise the kind of creativity that puts ideas into action, like the formation of a supply storage of items for babies, including diapers and formula and these other sorts of things. Third, we should make clear that our commitment to individuals extends beyond the birth of a child to the ongoing needs of the family. Resurrection Church's pro-life commitment needs to extend beyond the delivery of the baby and should instead include ongoing relational support, um, caring for spiritual health and financial care in those ongoing ways. Fourth, we should strengthen our relationship with Amnion Crisis Pregnancy Center. Um, in addition to the resources that we offer individuals who are part of our community, we should, we should really keep figuring out how we can partner with that organization to offer care for people in our community. So, so these are just a few starting point action items and ideas, uh, but it can't just be we're, we're talking loudly about this, but putting it into action. Ben? Yeah, that's a good question. So how should we relate to women who have had abortions? Um, I almost put a section on this, but I want to say that there's a, there's a popular dystopian novel called The Handmaid's Tale, where abortion doctors and women who had had abortions are prosecuted and executed, and that is the wrong way forward. Um, the way of Jesus is to offer forgiveness freely and without question. 
Um, so when, when there are individuals who have had an abortion, we, we don't hold that against them and we don't make them feel bad about it. And, and that's why, as you can tell throughout this whole time, I haven't made a big deal about the sinfulness of abortion. I've made a big deal about how we arrive about an ethical conclusion and what we do about it. I think we can certainly say abortion is not God's will. Um, but we also need to say God's will for those who have had an abortion is for them to find the love and forgiveness of Christ. So that's a good point, something we need to think about and actually offer uh, freely and without restraint. But we're at the end of our time, so I'll just uh, dismiss here. Thank you for listening.